Now, I got news for you. This is a shocking revelation from Scripture. You may not have heard anything like this before, but here it is. Ready? Go ahead and put it up there, Joe. It's really not all about you. All right, now do me a favor. Turn to the person sitting next to you and tell them that. It's really not all about you. <laughs> I think somebody had way too much fun with that, but uh, that's okay. Hey, I hope you have a Bible with you. We're going to look in Daniel chapter 4. We're also going to read a couple verses from Romans chapter 8, but we're going to uh, spend most of our time in Daniel chapter 4. Let me give you a little background. In Daniel 1 occurred around 6, 000, or 607 to 605 BC. Uh, Daniel and his friends were carried away to Babylon. A few years later, Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of uh, the statue, and it had the golden head and the silver torso and arms and the brass uh, center part upper leg and feet of uh, lower legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. About 20 years later, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah faced the fiery furnace. When they refused to bow down and they were thrown in the furnace, and at that time, Nebuchadnezzar saw the hand of God's protection, and he prohibited people from saying anything against the God of the names he called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You couldn't say anything against that God. However, Nebuchadnezzar himself did not become a believer at that time. In chapter 1, he recognized the superiority of Daniel and his three friends, and promoted them. In chapter 2, he promoted Daniel above all the others. In chapter 3, he recognized the spiritual strength and resolve of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But here in chapter 4, he has need for counsel, and he goes to everybody first, and then eventually he gets to Daniel, the most experienced, most insightful, most intelligent of all his advisors, he gets to him last. Chapter 4 begins right about 562 B.C. when Daniel was about my age. Uh, at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is giving praise to the one true God. Have you ever watched a show and it starts out on television or a movie? It starts out with this really scary thing and then it goes back, you know, 72 hours earlier or three weeks earlier. Well, this is a, a seven or eight years earlier scenario. We start with the conclusion, we end with the conclusion, but in the middle is the storyline that got us to that conclusion. Daniel chapter 4, verse number 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now let's go back and let's look at this. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar is giving praise to the one true God. In verse 1, he says, he is the God of all peoples. God has uh, given himself for everyone. 
He created everyone in his image. He had Christ die for the sins of all the people of all the world. And everyone can come to God through Jesus Christ. The God of all nations. Uh, he's uh, encouraging all people to look to God. God understands every language of those that are on the earth. So to all peoples and nations and languages that dwell on the earth. Now, anyone can come to God and find forgiveness because God is a gracious God. When he uses that phrase, all the earth, he's speaking of the dominion of a king, not just planet earth, but all the reign and so a king whose vast empire covers the whole earth. Nebuchadnezzar was a pretty powerful king. His kingdom covered a lot of turf, but it didn't cover all the earth. And he recognized the one who did. And then he says something very strange, the end of verse 1. Peace be multiplied to you. Does that sound strange? That's coming from the voice of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a violent king. He overthrew nations with violence. He attacked. He bloodied. It was a strange comment to come from his voice because he trampled nations. He put thousands to death in his conquest and put hundreds into slavery. But now, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar sounds a little more like Jesus. Peace be multiplied to you. That's not the same old Nebuchadnezzar that we started with in chapter one. And don't forget, he spent three years trying to indoctrinate true believers in God and trying to get them to turn away from the one true God and worship him and his false gods. But now he's exalting the Lord and offering peace to all peoples through Christ. It would be wonderful if we really had peace on earth, wouldn't it? We will someday when the Lord rules on planet earth physically. He rules spiritually today. But when he physically rules on planet earth, we will have worldwide peace at least for a thousand years before Satan gets loose. The Lord lets him out again and he stirs things up and turns people's hearts against the Lord. But God was working on Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar recognizes God for who he really is. So he says in verse 2, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. Now I've often said, God is working on you, in you, through you, and for you. And now Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing that God is working for him. I want you to mark your spot here and turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Nebuchadnezzar said, I want to tell you what the Most High God has worked for me. God limits, controls, interacts, engages, oversees the circumstances of your life in order to move you closer to Christ's likeness, just like God oversaw the circumstances of Nebuchadnezzar's life to bring him closer to God. 
Romans chapter 8. Look down at verse 28. Romans 8, 28. And we, what's the next word? No, we know that all things, how many things? All things. What does that sound like? All things. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and everything in the restaurant sounded good? All things. You just want to order one of everything with a couple of to-go boxes, right? Uh, all things. God said every single thing. So what's happened in your life lately? How many of you have had something that surprised you financially in kind of a negative way, an expense you weren't expecting. Anybody had that in the last year? We've had a few of those. And then Thursday, Benjamin, Thursday, Benjamin and I were in Phoenix and we got back in town and the van started acting like it was a rodeo horse, you know, doing this weird thing. And so we put it in the shop and they said, we don't know what's going on. Just take it out in the desert and shoot it. But that's not exactly what they said. But they didn't know what was going on. So they said, come and take it away, please. Uh, so now it's in another shop. Uh, we have unexplained financial things. How many of you have had sickness of one kind or another show up in the last year that you weren't planning on? Okay. How many of you had sickness you were planning on? <laughs> just, just, just check in. Uh, we've had financial distress. We've had physical distress. Some of you woke up this morning and your leg wasn't working as good as it was yesterday. And you don't know why. Stuff happens. God oversees the circumstances of your life. For we know, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So what God is doing is every circumstance of your life, Everything that happens, every flat tire, every, um, I guess, even every time you get the stomach flu and vomit, every single thing in your life, God is working together for good. When I was a kid, we snuck into the kitchen, and my brothers and I liked chocolate. I haven't been able to eat chocolate for a long time, but my brothers and I liked chocolate, and we found a stash of chocolate hidden in the pantry shelf, and we thought we'd hit the jackpot. It was this big box of baking chocolate. And oh man, we got out a knife, and we cut some of that, and we put it in our mouths, and we just know this is gonna be great. Have you ever eaten just pure baking chocolate? What makes chocolate taste good? The sugar, yeah. It was awful. But when you take that and you mix it together with some other stuff, you can have what my grandpa used to make the best German chocolate cake ever. There's an old country preacher who got up to preach and and right before he, he preached, he prayed. He said, God, 
Now, I hate baking soda. And I hate baking powder. And I don't like flour. But Lord, I love it when my wife puts all those together and makes biscuits. <laughs> God's going to work everything together. You're going to have in your life some awful taste and stuff. You're going to have some heartbreak that leaves you on your knees. If you haven't had it yet, sorry, it's coming. You're going to have some health things that will shake your life, that will change who you were before that and who you were after that. Two different people because of what God has allowed in your life. You're going to have spiritual trauma. A, a pastor or a an evangelist or a family member that you looked up to as spiritual and significant and they had a great impact in your life and they're going to either walk away from God or they're going to do something that really hinders their ministry and their life because we all struggle with sin. And if you focus your spiritual growth on following some person, like the Apostle John said twice in the book uh, of 1 John, you don't follow a man, you follow Christ. When you follow a man, no matter how great and godly that man is, you're in for trouble because no man measures up to Jesus Christ. And God takes all of these things, the, the difficulty you have because a spiritual mentor has failed and, and you're struggling and the health concerns, the financial concerns, and, and on your way home today, if your car starts making a funny noise, don't blame it on the sermon, okay? Uh, but God's going to use all of this together for good in your life because every isolated incident and the conglomerate of every incident is used by God to make you more like Jesus Christ. God didn't say, if you give your money to me, I'll make you wealthy. I saw that on TV, but Jesus didn't say that. God didn't say, if you follow me, all your problems will be over. In fact, he said the opposite. Any that will... Uh, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But what he said is this. Everything that happens to me, God is using for good in my life. He described it in the book of Job like he'd put a hedge in front and a hedge behind. Actually, that was Satan's testimony. He was trying to get to Job and God had put a hedge in there. If we were putting it in our terminology, we would say there was a force field around it. And God promises that anything that gets through to you, he is using for you to help you become more like Jesus Christ. We have circumstantial accidents, but theologically, it's all providence. It's God working in the circumstances of life to bring you closer to Jesus Christ. And someday we're going to be in his presence. Won't it be cool if when you get in his presence and before Jesus, you see a bit of his reflection in you? That's what we're living for. So that when we stand before Christ, we see him in us. And even more important than that, he sees himself 
reflected in us. And that's what God's doing. So back in Daniel chapter 4, hopefully you marked that, you can just jump right back. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar said, I want to declare to you the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. God is using this in my life. And then in verse 3, he continues to praise the Lord. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Now remember in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was thinking about the future and what's going to happen. And God told him, your kingdom's going to end. And then another kingdom's going to rise up that's inferior to yours. But he knew his kingdom would end. And then he says, his dominion is from generation to generation, the end of verse 3. And Nebuchadnezzar had a big kingdom. He had dominion over a huge area of planet Earth. And we talked about that several weeks ago and how far it extended to the east and the west and the north and the south. But nothing like the, the uh, dominion the Lord has. <clears throat> Because we're not sure how big the universe is. Because every time we send something out there to give us more information, we find there's more out there than we knew before. And they send things out into parts of the sky that we thought were just uh, dull and nothing there. And it finds there's millions and trillions of stars out there. And God rules over everything. Now, in verse 4, this takes us back about nine years from where we started. Nebuchadnezzar is going back in history, and he's saying, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my, pal in my house and flourishing in my palace. He was thriving financially. He was very prosperous. And he had a dream. He saw a dream which made him afraid. The thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last, Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar. He changed his name. Instead of Daniel being one who's following the one true God, Belteshazzar was one who's following one of the gods of Babylon. They changed their names when they brought them in. And so he calls him Belteshazzar because that's the name he gave him. According to the name of my God, in him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told him the dream before him saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. This didn't mean Daniel could do cool magic tricks. A chief of the magicians means simply that he was had the capacity to be an advisor to the king. He, he was a, sometimes called a soothsayer or a priest, someone who discovers hidden knowledge with the aid of supernatural powers. That's how Daniel was viewed in that culture in that day. So uh, 18 years ago, Malcolm, I'm sorry, was it 18 years ago? Well, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called The Tipping Point. And uh, uh, just the tip, you get to a place and there's a tipping point. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's right about at the tipping point in his life. And he doesn't see it coming. Things were going to change greatly. And every day of your life is a potential tipping point. 
You need to realize that God is at work today. So this fearful dream, the advisors didn't have any wisdom, but Daniel comes in as chief of the magicians. He was overseer of the ones who provided counsel and insight to the king. So in verse 9, because I know the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions in my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its height reached to the heavens and it could have seen to the ends of all the earth. What a weird dream. Kind of cool. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heaven dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head, in verse 13, while on my bed, and there was a watcher. Now, some faiths try and say this watcher was something unusual, something different. This is an angel, an angel of God sent to watch over. There was a watcher, one who was observing and evaluating, and God sends his angels around. In fact, it says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro over the whole earth. But he sent an angel there so that Nebuchadnezzar could see him. God already knew what was going on. But he put the angel there so Nebuchadnezzar could see what was going on. And this watcher, a holy one come down from heaven, cried out and said, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. And... Uh, in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Let him gaze with the beast. Now you notice the transition. It's been talking about a tree saying it, it, it. Now uh, in verse number uh, 15, it talks about him. Let him graze with the beasts of the field and the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of an animal. Let seven times pass over him. The dream has changed. It was talking about an it. Now it's a him. And so this is talking about uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself. And it says, uh, verse uh, 10, let him be given the heart of an animal. Let seven times, verse 16, let seven times pass over him. What does seven times mean? You know, we're not sure. It could mean year, but it's an ambiguous word in the Hebrew. Why would we think it means seven years? Well, let's actually jump down to verse 33 and look at the description of Nebuchadnezzar. The very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar, he was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle feather and his nails like bird's claws. So that had to be time for those nails to grow out hard and long. And, and uh, that's not possible in seven days. Not likely in seven months. More likely happened in seven years. 
So that's probably, that's what almost all scholars agree, seven times means seven years, even though it doesn't use that term. And so then in verse 18, Nebuchadnezzar, oh, uh, verse 17, sorry, the de decision by decree of the watchers, God's decree, the angels presenting God's decree, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, or the holy one, in order to the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. So then Nebuchadnezzar says, please make this known to me. You are able, the end of verse 18, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Now Daniel didn't want to tell the king what the dream meant. Now there's a couple of reasons why. One, Daniel cared for Nebuchadnezzar. He had been kidnapped, he'd been hauled away, but he cared. He did what we're supposed to do biblically, show reverence and honor and respect for those in authority over us, even when they're not good people. We show reverence and respect. So hopefully, politically, you're showing reverence and respect for those who serve in our city government, the state government, the federal government. Hopefully, you're showing respect for them. Don't call your senators, senators. Uh, use appropriate uh, speech to show respect. You don't have to follow them. You can pray that they get it voted out of office. And you should never worship any of them. There has never been a politician in America yet who has been the one to point the people of America back to God. Not even George Washington. And it's all been downhill since him, right? Uh, no, nobody has been that person. So don't put your hopes in man. Don't follow man. But Daniel showed great respect for Nebuchadnezzar. He cared. He even said when the king said uh, in the middle of verse 19, do not let the, let the dream or the interpretation trouble you. And then Daniel, Belteshazzar, said, uh, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. So he said, I really want this to happen to those other people, not to you. But here's the interpretation. Verse 20, the tree... That beautiful tree, he goes on in verse 22, the tree, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominions to the ends of the earth, to the end of the known world. There were other kingdoms, other things going on, but not in that region. And so in verse 23, the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down saying, chop down the tree till seven times pass over him, jumping down later in the verse. So verse 24, this is the interpretation and the decree. Verse 25, they shall drive you from men. Your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, here's some counsel from Daniel. Let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous 
and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel begs and pleads for the king to repent, to change his ways. And you and I need to encourage people to repent and to seek the mercy of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar was at a tipping point, and so are you. See, I believe you need to know every moment of your life is a pivotal moment. They don't all feel like it, but they are. Almost everyone in this room who is married can remember when they met that one that they're now married to. Can, how many of you are married? You can agree with that. You remember when you met. Right. How many of you, on the day that you met, thought, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to go out and meet the love of my life. Anybody have that idea? Did you, Tim, when you met Missy? What were you, like, two? <laughs> they've known each other a long time. Kathy and I were in middle school when we met, but, but they've known each other even a lot longer than that. So, no, you didn't think that way. You didn't uh, feel, oh, I got a revelation from the Lord. Today's the day. And you go to the shopping mall and you're just waiting. <laughs> That's not how it worked. You know what it was for me? I was hungry. My parents were going to her parents' house, and she was a good cook. And I could stay home and fed for myself, or I could tag along and have a good meal. I tagged along. I went over for dinner and stayed. Never left. <laughs> but listen, every moment is a pivotal moment. Here's why. God is at work in this moment. God doesn't just wait till Sunday so he can speak into your life. Although some of you sometimes wait till Sunday before you listen to God. Shame on you. But we don't have to wait till Sunday for God to speak into our life. He's doing it every day. The Holy Spirit of God is at work in our lives. Every moment, every day, every moment is a pivotal moment. At any moment, you are turning closer to God or further away. Physically, we can stand still. Spiritually, we can't. Spiritually, it's more like you're vibrating. You're moving up or away. You can't stand still. You ever see those kids? I remember a comic years ago, Jeffy, family circus, sitting in church. And during church, I mean, he was all over the place. And by the time it was over, his shirt was all wrinkled. His tie was askew. And they were walking out of church. And mom and dad were exhausted from sitting through church with him. And he says, I did a good job of sitting still, didn't I? <laughs> well, spiritually, you can't sit still. You're moving closer to God or further away, depending on what's going on in here and what's going on in here, what's going on in your head and what's going on in your heart. And that's what determines whether you're moving closer to God or further away. Every moment is pivotal. You are at a tipping point every day. Because we don't really have now. We live in the future. Because every moment is future. You take a breath in. When you exhale, it's in the future. 
Because we don't have now, we have now, 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 now. That's how time works. And every moment, God is at work in your heart and life. And so sometimes we get casual about spiritual things. We think, oh, you know, I'll miss this week, but it's not that big a deal. Might have been to God. The moments when God spoke into my life in a church service were never announced in advance. When I felt like I needed to dedicate my life to the Lord after I was a believer, didn't have any warning. When I felt God call me to preach, no warning at all. Even when I got saved, I honestly just went to camp to get away from my dad. I came back a Christian. He said, sweet. <laughs> he still says it's the best hundred bucks he ever spent. He sent me to camp. God is at work in this moment. And so Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar wisdom. He says, turn to God, repent. Maybe you can prolong the days of good. And possibly Nebuchadnezzar did a little bit, but it didn't last for very long. We find in verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, so we started out at when Daniel's about my age. We've gone back about nine years or so, eight to nine years. And so that would have put Daniel in his um, mid-40s to late 40s. And now we've moved up a year again. So he's still in his late 40s. Maybe he's actually just turned 50 when this happens. And the king spoke. Uh, at the, he's walking about his royal palace in verse 30. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Now, remember in chapter 1, it says in chapter 1, I think it's in verse 2, where it says, God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar said, look what I did. I am awesome. I remember watching the Summer Olympics years ago, and there was a runner from France, and she was, ran the 800 meter, and she had really super long legs and a phenomenal stride when she came off the corner and sprinted to victory. And afterward, they're having the interview, and they're talking to her, and they said, how do you feel? Is this great? And Aren't you excited? And she said, I am spectacular. And they said, well, yeah, I guess. You know, One of them said, well, she ran spectacularly, but what a bold statement. How many athletes have said, I am the greatest? It always cracks me up, you know, when there's a, a football team, you know, and, and they're, they have not won any game all season. And the guy scores a touchdown and he gets up, oh, <laughs> Oh, I know what he's saying. We got one. <laughs> Finally got a touchdown. Well, they all think they're number one when they win. But what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar is exactly what God said would happen. And he was lifting up his heart, and the things that were a gift from God 
he credited as something he had earned and accomplished. Now let's pause just for a minute. You have gifts from God too. Some of you are financially very well off. And part of that has been discipline on your part, wise investing, saving. But it's a gift from God. Remember, God told the Israelites in Deuteronomy that the Lord is the one who gives you the power to get wealth. It's a gift from God. Yes, you've done well with it and you've worked hard with it, but it's still a gift. Without God's grace, it would not have happened. And Nebuchadnezzar was taking credit for everything. And sometimes we can too. Did you know that the biggest moments in your life and most significant moments come unannounced? And did you remember that God has never once said, oops? <laughs> Not once. More than 6,000 years of human history, God has not said, oops. God has never had to say, I'm sorry. He does what's right. He moves us closer to Christ's likeness. And so, verse 31, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they will make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws. It happened exactly like God said. And you know, God talks about those who love money. And he said, if you love money, it will lead to your destruction. First Timothy chapter six. It's not wrong to have money, but hold it loosely. Trust in the Lord, not in your finances. I praise God for rich Christians who have helped and blessed ministries and churches and hospitals and missionaries and praise God for that. But hold it loosely. Trust God, not your money. And it, God is allowing uncomfortable circumstances in our lives to do several things. He is working according to an infinite master plan that we don't know, but he does. First thing, he is working to humble you. He is reminding you of your place in his kingdom. He rules. You don't. He's working to humble you. Secondly, he's working to change your focus. Instead of thinking about and being uh, absorbed with yourself to focus on the awesomeness of God. Nebuchadnezzar was so focused on himself, he didn't even realize that apart from the grace and mercy of God, he couldn't take a breath. That's a gift from God. He wants you to humble you and 
to refocus your thoughts. He wants to remind you of your desperate dependence on him. I have seen this in my own life and in the lives of others as I've, Kathy and I've been involved in ministry for 30 years, more than that. Uh, when we face desperate circumstances, we get very real with God. Some of you remember the Sunday after 9-11, after the terrorist attacks. Uh, churches were filled to capacity and overflowing. A month later, there were plenty of empty seats. What happened? There was a desperation. I've seen Christian parents just kind of going through the motion with their kids, keeping them in church, but not really focused on teaching them the word of God, not really begging and pleading for the heart of their kids. And then something bad happens. Oh man, now they're on their knees, they're praying, they're crying out to God because desperation moves us to prayer. And we, we need to realize we have a desperate dependence on God every day. Every moment. John 15, 5, Jesus said, without me, you can do how much? Nothing. Nothing. Now, if Jesus had been from Texas, he would have said, you can't do nothing. <laughs> without me, you can do nothing. Realize your desperate dependence on him. You don't come to church so you can get pearls of wisdom from Brother Terry. I hope not. You come because of the Lord. You come to worship him with like-minded people and be drawn closer to him and listen to the Holy Spirit speak into your heart and life. We, we, we are desperately dependent on the Lord. And the fourth thing that God works in our circumstances to humble us, to change our focus, to remind us of our desperate dependence, and fourthly, to encourage us to share his truth with other people. See, back in verse 2, that's what Nebuchadnezzar said. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. I thought it good to share this with you. And so now we come down to the end of the book, and Nebuchadnezzar sharing it again. Uh, in verse 34, we're jumping back to 562 B.C. when Daniel was my age. And Nebuchadnezzar has come through this ordeal from when the announcement was made to more than a year of peace and prosperity to seven years or so of great difficulty. In verse 34, at the end of the time... I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his, king, his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Verse 36. 
At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are true, and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to abase. He said, it's not about me. Oh, when he started this scenario, a year after the warning from Daniel, he's walking in his palace, it was all about him. Look what I've done. Look what I've built. I am awesome. And now he says, there's only one awesome one. And it's not me. It's the Lord. The Lord God. Does your view of God cause you to praise, worship, submit to, and obey the Lord? Sometimes I'm afraid we want just enough Jesus to help when things get difficult but not so much that it changes the activities of our daily lives. Jesus said, that's not good enough. He wants your heart. According to Historia Anglorium, an English history, Canute, an 11th century king of England, decided to counteract the flattery of his counselors by sitting on a chair at the beach and forbidding the tide to come in. <laughs> when it continued to come in, he took the crown off his head and he hung it on a statue of the crucified Christ. And he never wore the crown again. Is Jesus Lord of your life? God told Nebuchadnezzar, I don't want you to just think highly of me like he did in chapters 2 and 3. I want you to bow before me like he did in chapter 4. We serve an awesome God. We will not always understand what he's doing. But he is trustworthy. We can trust him. And we must serve him.